Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and fully self-enlightened one. Um, <clears throat> this evening I was just going to let my, um, my mind wander around uh, the factors of enlightenment and dependence origination, just see, we'll see where we go, you know. <laughs> one of the things I've been uh, stressing this week, in fact I tend to be stressing it a lot, is this uh, quality of equanimity. And uh, it seems to me that equanimity has, is twofold. Um, its ratings, just before I go into that, its rating in Buddhist um, virtues is the highest. There's a lovely book called Vision of the Dhamma by Nyanaponika. who was a German monk, he's died now. <clears throat> and he points out that um, equanimity lies beneath any virtue. And therefore, is of, uh, of enormous importance to develop it. And this equanimity has, as I say, two uh, strands. It's both intellectual and attitudinal, which, of course, engages our emotions. In uh, Buddhist, in the Buddha's understanding, when we hold on to a view or an opinion. There are three factors involved. Um, tanha, mano and ditti. So now ditti is the word for wrong understanding. And the tanha is the emotional grip that we have upon our opinion. And the mano is the self or the identity we have with a particular philosophy or idea. So now you can see this not only <coughs> in uh, religious circles, you know, fanatics, fundamentalists, uh, but you see it just in political life, you know. So people identify with their opinion, with their understanding, and they label it the truth. I'm right and everybody else is wrong. It's perfectly obvious to me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't understand how other people can't understand that I'm perfectly right and everybody else is wrong. <coughs> and in, one of, in the early discourses, the Buddha's constantly telling his monks and nuns not to get involved in these debates, <coughs> which are not about uh, determining what is truth, but about who wins. And uh, he says, if you lose, you go away feeling ashamed and hurt. <laughs> and if you win, you're full of pride and absolutely more sure that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So there's an intellectual level to this equanimity. The emotional level is that pain that we have when, uh, as the Buddha points out, we're worsted in an argument. 
and the holding on to our belief systems. And that's all entwined around this sense of who I am. So I am a socialist, you know, I, I vote Labour, I'm, I'm a conservative. All these I am. And <clears throat> what it does, of course, it just creates opposition. So just talking on political lines, um, the fact that people align themselves to a party line eh, means that um, you've always got this, conf this conflict going on, you know, and all the silliness of politics. <laughs> if people, if politicians uh, were to think of their opinions, their views, their beliefs more in terms of a perspective, you'd have a very different politic. Because a perspective, the word a perspective, presumes that there are other perspectives. And if you take politics to be a circle, moving from left to right, or right to left, <coughs> then you can see, if it's a circle, you're, you're a dot on this circle, looking at the object within, whatever the problem is. And if you see it as a perspective, you're very open to see what the person on the opposite side of the circle actually sees. And in this way, at least, we can formulate a more... Uh, correct truth perhaps although you've always got to watch the majority haven't you I think it was Gandhi who said um, truth can be in the uh, truth can be in the majority of one or something or truth can be truth can be <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> then he was saying don't trust the majority <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of atrophying atrophying <coughs> brain you see Truth can be in a minority of one, that's what he said. So, within ourselves, we have all these opinions, all these understandings that we've, you know, maybe we've never questioned. We've, we've just believed that this is the way it is. Uh, you might be an eternalist. You know, you might have been brought up in a religion and felt that you've been in contact with God. And... Um, and you're just an eternalist and that you believe there is a very caring creator who looks after us. On the other hand, you might have been brought up in a more secular scientific society in which everything can be reduced to atoms and subatomic particles. You know, that a human being is just neurons and stuff like that. And because you've settled into that view and, you, and we define ourselves by that view, everything we see is from that standpoint. And to shake it, to, to actually change that view is extraordinarily difficult for us. At least as a conscious activity. I mean, I'm, you know, people say, I mean, I, I was brought up a Catholic and people say, you know, being brought up in something like Catholicism is a real awful indoctrination and you end up <laughs> completely cramped. That's <laughs> what some people do. But I'm always uh, surprised that, uh, you know, I woke up one morning, I was, uh, I think I was 21 or 22, and I said to myself, I won't go to Mass this Sunday and see what happens. Now in those days, not to go to Mass was mortal sin. If you happen to die on Sunday <laughs> or on a Monday morning, not having gone to Mass purposefully 
well, you were in for hellfire. It was, God, it was an awful <laughs> punishment for missing mass. Uh, they've repealed all that now, thank heavens. <laughs> but I remember uh, not going and then sort of saying to myself afterwards, well, nothing happened. <laughs> I sort of broke through this mythical idea that if I, if I didn't go through the Mass, you know, something really horrible would happen. And nothing happened. And uh, from that moment on, I never went back. Never. Never stepped into another church. Not, you know, for years and years. I mean, I went in afterwards for, for various reasons. But I never went back. And uh, the year was 1968. Now, 1968 was a core year. There was a lovely film, a Canadian film. I can't remember the name of it. I've been racking my brains for it. In which it's a story of a man who, around about 60, 60 odd, this is, was taken a few years ago, who uh, is dying of cancer. And his family, really, it's a film about him uh, dying of cancer, basically. But um, at one point, um, his son has come back with his girlfriend. He's, he's working the stock markets in London. Um, and the girlfriend is a, um, uh, an art dealer. And she gets invited by this priest to come and see all these artifacts. And when she walks into the room, it's all those dreadful plaster statues that <laughs> used to be all over, you know, Catholic churches and stuff. As art, I mean. I mean, they, as, as, re as religious objects, of course, mm -hmm. they work. And he wants to know how much, you know, how much she, she might consider their worth. And she looks at him and, and rather sadly says, I'm afraid, you know, you might get an individual collector who's interested, but uh, artistically they're of no value whatsoever. <laughs> and then he muses. He says, you know, it began in 1968. He said, that the church is just emptied. And, uh, and that was the year of the, the French Revolution, wasn't it? In Paris, the, the great uprising, the student uprising. So that's just a little aside. <laughs> but, to, but to sort of say that, uh, in my case, it was an easy letting go of old uh, philosophies. But then it was in the atmosphere of the time. And um, I think for most people it's quite the opposite. They, they take on quite rigid opinions, rigid views. And they find <coughs> anybody else's views as simply wrong. I mean, I have um, somebody I know who simply calls all religions, apart from Christianity, man-made. The only one that's God-made is, is Christianity. <laughs> you know, he's sort of a bit, bit damning, but there we are. But he, doesn't <laughs> but he doesn't feel negative or anything. It's like, well, you know, this is the real, this is the real one, and, and the rest is made up. <laughs> so, all these different opinions, when you, when you think about them, and you think of the awesome wars, I mean, the last century, of course, was really the, um, the effect of ideologies, which is exactly that. They're, they're an opinion which have been lifted to the, to the point of belief, a belief, you see, and in which, to which people adhere, both emotionally and intellectually. There's an intellectual backing for it. Um, and... And before you know it, you've got you've got you've got catastrophe on your hands, and that's still going on. You know these Islamists and people like that. 
who just can't uh, let go of their, their their vision. It's them. I am. I am. Now, what equanimity is asking us to do is disidentify, is to see that that is a perspective. It, it's not a case of it's wrong or right, it's just a perspective. And no human being can hold the whole truth, as simple as that. And therefore, there has to be some sort of conversation, some sort of uh, communication. Um, the Buddha himself, um, having come to his realization, uh, never uh, never went around sort of um, shouting, you know, I am I am the enlightened one. Actually, there's a there's a cute little story around that, which some of you might know. He was on his way to meet his six disciples, his five old companions, and um, an ascetic saw him and said, you know, and was uh, taken aback by how he looked, by the radiance of him, you know. And he said to him, oh, Venerable, he says, you know, you look quite radiant. Who is your teacher, you see? And the Buddha goes into this enormous panegyric about, I am the fully enlightened one. I am the, <laughs> I am the one who knows. And on and on, you see. And this ascetic said, oh, very good, yes, and then walked off. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's funny how that little story, you know, which is, which is sort of funny, I mean, uh, how how he must have woken up to uh, that's not quite the way to teach you know, <laughs> to, to establish oneself as the next cosmic leader <laughs> and, and you do get this feeling that he had to learn how to teach no, it wasn't that didn't these things don't come with with awakening these are just these are just uh, skills which, which you have to you know teach yourself so that his doctrine if you read the scriptures the early level of the scriptures you can see he's very um, uh, spontaneous replies to people. It's not really a fixed doctrine. The idea's there, it's all there. But it's not into four of these, ten of those, one of these, and all that sort of stuff. That comes later, the formulation of his, of his doctrine into the Four Noble Truths and things like that. But his normal ploy, when somebody came to him and said, you know, uh, what's your teaching on karma, or what's this, or what's that? He was always asked, what's yours? See? He would ask them to... Uh, you know, to speak their understanding. And then he would discuss their understanding with them, you see. And of course the scriptures only record those understandings that didn't accord with his teachings. <laughs> Otherwise, it was yeah, very good, come and join me. It was, you know, no problem. But those who, the, the, the regular ones who disagreed, he would then argue his point, and most would then be, as it were, able to let go of their hard opinion, you see their stance, I'm right, you're wrong. And in so doing, he would then uh, lay out his own doctrine, uh, which they would take up. Um, not always, some, some didn't take it up. There's, um, there are cases where, you know, he argues the point with somebody, but they're not convinced, and off they go. So there's that whole business about Entering into the meditation, entering into this experience from a position of don't know or not sure. And that's always a bit um, frightening for us because we've always coming from a, a sort of stable base about I know. But unfortunately, those concepts, those ideas, those opinions, um, even when they're right, 
you see, even when they're right, uh, become uh, undermine your meditation. Uh, one expects, you see. Now, if one has an idea, shall we say, of Nibbāna, so you've read the books and you've got some idea of it, so one begins to meditate with the, with the idea of achieving Nibbāna. Now, <clears throat> the problem with expectation is that if you, if you do achieve it, because it's simply an expression of a concept, um, um, you'd be absolutely deluded. And if, if you don't achieve it, you're deeply disappointed. So it's like, it's like whenever we're chasing a concept, it necessarily cramps uh, the direct experience. It gets in the way. So we can see this in very simple things like looking at flowers. You, you know, you'll pass a shop and you'll see a flower that you recognize, roses, you see. And uh, um, as far as we're concerned, in a sense, we've experienced that rose or the, that bunch of roses. Uh, and we tend to be satisfied with that. You know, there's something in it that says, oh yeah, that's roses, you know. That's a green finch. I know a green finch and all that. <laughs> and it stops us looking at the rose, at the green finch, as an individual phenomena. And when you look at something and keep looking at it, and I hope you've um, been experiencing this a bit, um, and you lose that sort of definition of what it is, suddenly the object brightens up, as it were. It takes on, it takes on um, certain qualities that coming at it from a, a perception has been gently pushed aside by the mind. And we do it with people. We do it uh, most obviously uh, when we fall in love. When you fall in love and there's, there's this wonderful romantic <laughs> uh, tune going on, um, one sees only the beauty of the other. Well, one, can't, one cannot see the cracks. It's not possible. <laughs> Three, six months, at best nine months down the line, <laughs> thing begins to go off. And, well then we may find a deep relationship or we may not. But the, but the fact is that that romantic aura, that, that lovely surround that we put onto a person uh, is in itself deluded. Yeah? It's, it's, it's two hearts meeting, isn't it? Two, two, two persons meeting at that lovely level. So <clears throat> um, this idea of coming from a particular position of knowing, any form of knowing, must necessarily cramp the experience we're having. We're not fully, fully open to it. And one of the benefits of noting is to make that label obvious to us. So when you note, you can see exactly what, you know, it's like a recognition of what it is. But that's always a halfway house. The, the, the point of it is to then allow that word, as it were, to recede as our attention grows upon the object. Until hopefully, occasionally, perhaps today, uh, some of you have experienced just that still gaze upon something, you know, a, a total absorption into the object, even, even if it's only for a small time. Now, when we let go of something, when we start letting go of, of um, definitions and of uh, treasured opinions and all that, um, 
the heart revolts. See, it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel safe at all. And that's the fear, you see, which is based on this definition of who I am. See, so it may be that somebody who's a theist, who believes in a personal God, uh, you know, coming to, opening up to the fact there may not be one, is horrific. Isn't it? I mean, think about it. I mean, <laughs> if all your life you believe that there's this wonderful, loving being who's going to greet you upon death, and and you open up to the possibility that there might not be one, well, it's pretty awful, isn't it? Much in the same way that somebody who had already settled into a nihilistic point of view, an annihilationist, rather, point of view, uh, meaning that upon death everything goes away, uh, the idea that, in fact, they might reappear, <laughs> you know, in, in a farm shed as a cow, is <laughs> something... It's something horrific. I mean, God, of all things, you know. <laughs> Possibility is stunning. So, um, letting. So, how do we? You know, how can we approach the Dharma? And we're talking here about the Buddha's, the Buddha's Dharma. How can we approach the Dharma in that very? open-hearted, open-minded way, you see. That's our, that's our big problem. That's our big problem. So when we begin to sit, you see, and we're beginning to investigate these three characteristics, um, it's good just before you begin, you know, to say, well, just for this time, just for this time being, I'll put aside, you see. That's easy, isn't it? You know, not I'll get rid of and I'll change everything. I'll, I'll just put aside my understandings for a while and just see if in fact what the Buddha is talking about is true. That at least opens us up to uh, the possibility of experiencing things. Even when we experience things uh, directly, sometimes uh, they may be wrong. I mean, every day we experience directly, perceptually, the sun rising and then falling. Now we know, or at least I believe, <laughs> that it's us going round the sun. I've no proof for that. My proof is that the sun rises and the sun sets and is definitely going around us. <laughs> so at the perceptual level, it doesn't mean that just because we perceive something, therefore it's right. And in much the same case with meditation, just because we perceive something the once doesn't mean that's the end of it. One has to keep on until one is absolutely sure that, yes indeed, everything, everything arises and passes away. Yeah? That everything that I'm experienced does not constitute anything permanent, substantial, a self. You have to keep seeing it, keep seeing it until you're sure of it. Okay? Um, is all desire... Uh, to be banished, what sorts of desire are allowable, what sorts of desire do lead on to liberation and what sorts of desires don't. The, all these things are left up to us to discover ourselves. Nobody, nobody can put that in you. You know, there's that very uh, too often quoted um, statement that the Buddhas only point the way. You know, they don't, that's all they can do. They can only say, look, there's a door for us to actually go through it. So this whole investigation is always coming from a point of 
not sure. Even when we've experienced something which we feel is absolutely right, um, it's only when we have repeated that experience uh, often enough for us. It's like it's it's all it's like the scientific method in that sense. Do we then become pretty sure about what, uh, where truth or where the the liberation lies? So all, all this week, you know, we've been we've been looking at uh, pleasure around food. So we might have um, experienced a few things during that time, experienced, uh, you know, how the body and mind fire off each other, pleasant taste, pleasant, pleasant mind, pleasant heart. Uh, we, we might see that process of desire. We might know that uh, some of it is to do with appetite, some do with greed and whatnot. And uh, we may have experienced just letting go of greed Greed in that very wider sense of of, uh, of seeking happiness in sensual pleasure, see? confusing sensual joy with real happiness. That's where the the problem lies. Um, and we might have seen it, you know, in in the way the mind constantly seeks distraction. Uh, but really, even though we see it, even though we see it, you know, and we might be fairly clear. The fact is that unless it begins to move into behavior, we haven't really seen it. Often you'll get these stories of people who've had you know, catastrophic happenings which have changed their lives. And that tells us that often that's what it takes <laughs> for us to wake up. <laughs> you know, you get people who've um, you know, had near-death experiences, who've li whose lives have been completely changed around. Uh, people who've been um, shamed in public. Who t I, I was just reading now somewhere along the line about the old Profumo cases way back in the 50s, I think it was, or 60s, um, where there was a scandal around prostitutes and this minister of, uh, of the government under Heath. And he became then the head of um, some big charity. Uh, does anybody remember that? No. Uh, and, he be and he spent the rest of his life uh, guiding, this, guiding this charity. You know, and seemingly very good at it. So, often it, um, often for a real change of behaviour, it takes quite a thump, and that shows us that oh yeah, we've seen it, but we're not going to change. Uh, perhaps a more obvious example is people who smoke. I mean, they they've seen pictures of it, they cough, <laughs> all the signs are there that they might have a heart attack, they might have cancer. But it's only when you get a heart attack that they say, oh, I better stop now. <laughs> have a case in point of a friend's father who smoked all his life, had a heart attack and just stopped, boom, boom, like that. And, you know, he had, he had, he had a, a good constitution, went on to live for a, quite a lot, you know, for, into old age. And the Buddha puts it rather nicely when he says, some people wake up when even upon the hearing of the word death, like, you know, <laughs> like there it is. Some people don't wake up until uh, somebody... Um, very close to them uh, dies. Some people, sorry, let me get this straight, hold on, I've got it the other way around. Okay, some people don't wake up, um, that's right, some people wake up when they hear some, uh, you know, the word death. Other people wake up when, they, when somebody famous dies, somebody whom they've had some sort of relationship with through TV or something. Other people wake up, or don't wake up until somebody close dies. And then there are those unfortunate who don't wake up until it's their time to die. <laughs> it's a bit late, isn't it? 
<laughs> you know, like, what's my life about? Well, I've got about six weeks. <laughs> not very helpful, is it? So at least we've, uh, we're a bit ahead of that one. You know, we're, we're <laughs> coming here is, uh, coming here to do this meditation is asking that question, you know, what's my life about? So uh, this equanimity, you can see, first of all, puts down uh, the conceptual world. This conceptual world, remember, contains all our history, all our experience is entwined in words. So if you say apple, you know, when, when you see an apple, when you take an apple, for instance, at lunch, you're not taking that apple, you're taking every apple that you've ever eaten. That's what you're taking there with that apple because you presume this apple will be the one that you want to taste. You know, if it tastes too bitter or, or too soft, well, it's not an apple, is it? This is something, it's not, this isn't an apple. It doesn't, doesn't fit into my definition of apple. So, uh, this, uh, all that has to go away, you see. All that has to be put aside. And the purpose of the noting is to make that obvious to us by by the, the singularity of a single word and then to be able to put the word aside by attending entirely to the feel of the experience. And then there's the emotional bit which is our prejudice. You know, we, we, we get emotionally involved in our understanding and the way things are. Um, on one retreat, you see, there was a, a guy came who was a scientist at uh, Oxford studying, if I remember rightly, PhD or something. And he'd had some idea of meditation. Um, the, the gist of it was, I think, that he thought it would be just calming and it would help him in his, in his studies. And uh, when he came on, on you know, this retreat like this, you see, he came across uh, belief systems that he just couldn't handle. And after about a day or so, he, he, said, he said to me, you know, I just can't handle all this business about the body and mind and stuff. <laughs> so off he went and I was time again. <laughs> so he wasn't at all open to the experience that he might have got through the passana, which may have changed his opinion, you see. And that's where you get the scare tactic, that's where you get the scared, uh, the scare coming up, you know. Of course it's blocked, it's blocked by I'm right, everybody else is wrong. So what, you know, what do I need to investigate you for? You know, what do I need to investigate this for? I'm perfectly right, and you're, and you're perfectly wrong. Full stop. So, putting all that aside, you can see, is the basis of very clear investigation, isn't it? Even in science, we're not only talking here about spiritual practice, uh, but scientists have to do that as well. Um, you know, they don't have to come from a creed. There was that dreadful case in Russia wasn't there of that uh, agriculturalist the guy who created all the famines um, uh, I can't remember his name was it no it's something well, there'll be an itch on the end of it <laughs> <laughs> or an of but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah and, and of course the reason why Stalin liked him was because it fitted into communist ideology see, and all that because it created huge famines. I, I can't remember the details, unfortunately. So even the scientist, anybody investigating anything, you know, has to come in with uh, that sort of um, clean slate, you know. A judge, see. What do we expect of judges? 
We don't expect them to, to, be, to have preconceived ideas of the case, you know. We don't expect them to be politically motivated, and they were at one time, weren't they? 18th century was full of judges who just uh, did it for political reasons, you know, they hanged you because they didn't like you. <laughs> uh, we don't expect them to come, we don't expect them to be coming from, judging from a position of fear, uh, a fear of favour, we don't expect them to be prejudiced, see? All these things we expect of a judge because the judge has to be equanimous. He has to be in this position of non-involvement, detachment from the case. So you can see that equanimity is, is the ground of our practice. And whenever we begin a meditation session to actually start by establishing that, the calmness of the heart, stillness of the mind, and, you know, just a moment of letting go and then that curiosity to determine um, whether we can see things as they really are, not as I would want them to be. And to do that, we need faith. So faith here isn't the belief. And that's, that's very corruptive. Faith is more trust. We have to trust. Now, it's not only trusting in the Dharma, in the teaching of the Buddha. We must trust ourselves. You know, we must trust ourselves that, that um, investigation of truth will actually bring liberation. To see ourselves as we really are will bring at least, at least liberation from delusion. Okay. I mean, when the Buddha went and sat under that tree, you know, he had to let go of everything that he'd learnt because none of it, he, I mean, he'd tried everything as best he could and none of it had led him anywhere. So he was ready, as it were, to let go. He was ready, as it were, to restart the investigation. And um, all this is undermining this dependent origination. So in dependent origination, we begin from the point of view of delusion, see, ignorance, not knowing. And what this creates is a wrong relationship with the world. So that's when we say avijja pacha sankara. See, dependent upon this not knowing, upon a mistake, we create these conditionings. We create our conditionings. And the purpose is to make us feel safe, to make us feel happy. That's what you want to be, isn't it? You want to be safe and you want to be happy. And through the next section where the Buddha points out the body and mind, through the five, uh, six senses, and through contact, which is a given... We're dependent on this body uh, for our relationship to the world. Um, we uh, express those delusions. We express those misunderstandings. And those misunderstandings um, develop into certain conditionings within us which manifest as relationship. So when we see food, as we say, there is that greed for food, you see. It comes up as a pleasant feeling. It comes up as a pleasant feeling. So that's a, 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 a condition that's arisen from past behaviour. So that's the given, you see. Then we have this reaction of uh, wanting and not wanting. And it's at this point that these original, this original delusion manifests 
That's why the Buddha points to this desire business. It manifests there as desire. And it's knowing that desire for what it is and being able to sit with it and not run with it, not just give in to it, which is the process of drawing out or releasing or, or uh, allowing that conditioning which has been built up from the past to die away. So that's the, that's the drainage point of the whole process of, of, uh, of delusion, of creating this constant delusion. If we miss that point, the next point is this upadana, this grasping, you see. That's when you, the I comes in. I want. And once that's happened, it's very difficult to stop the next process, which is the empowerment of that wanting. And that's the becoming. That's the becoming, the bhava. So we see the object strikes us, it comes to us, and we have the relationship come up. P very pleasant. Right? So it starts off with just that contact, very pleasant, very nice, want, I want, I get. That's, that's, the psych that's the psychological process. In our language we think the I comes first, but actually the I comes quite late in that process. And that's why we can step in, because once there's the identity it's very difficult to stop, you, to stop yourself doing something. So it's catching the wanting at this emotional level, at that sort of power level of wanting that allows us to have that um, wisdom to see it as something which is unwholesome for us, not skillful, not virtuous, not virtuous. Virtue here meaning that which, that which does us good. If it's, if it's not doing us good, then it's not, it's not virtuous. And then we have to create the will, you see, to let go of it, to endure, to be with that craving until it passes away. So while we're practicing this, remember, the other side of, our, uh, spirit, uh, of the spiritual life is being exercised. And we call that the parami, uh, translated as the perfections, which isn't, isn't quite right. Parami just means those things that lead you to the other shore. One of the uh, ways that the Buddha often talked about Nibbana was the other shore. Right? So you have to swim across to get to the other shore. And that effort to get to the other shore is, is, the, is the path. So these parami, one of which is this uh, determination that I put on the door there, uh, to, to make a, de a determined determination, is one of those things that we have to develop. Perfection gives you the idea that, that you get to a point where you don't have to develop it anymore. Well, in a sense, that's not quite right. It's, it's more in the sense that it has to be continuously uh, developed. See? Patience, um, constancy, you know, determination, all these are qualities that we, that we get naturally from this process. See? Now, that business of Bhava, that business of becoming, you see. see that's, where, that's what the Buddha means by rebirth. Indeed, there's this uh, process of rebirth when we die. But that, could, that has to be, unless you yourself have had a past life experience or something, that will always have to be in some, in some sort of uh, belief system somewhere, which, which you may or may not believe. But that's not kernel to the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha's teaching is that Right here and now, we keep rebirthing into this self, 
a new self. Every time we make a decision, the self has moved. The self has become another self. So take, for instance, uh, say these days one might, one might find oneself unemployed. So uh, before one was working in an office and now, and now you're working in a chip shop. So you see, <laughs> you've rebirthed. You've moved out of, <laughs> out of an office into a chip shop. Which is probably a better move. Probably a very good move. <laughs> so uh, this, re this business of rebirthing applies to the self. And there are many times we're not rebirthing. The most obvious one is when we're asleep. That's not a process of rebirth. We're not, we're not rebirthing in that sense of a self-becoming all the time. Sometimes we are not rebirthing the self when we're acting from the pure heart of generosity, of compassion and love. That's not, uh, that's not rebirth in, in the Buddhist sense of rebirthing the self. See? So when he became enlightened, he had stopped rebirthing. I mean, it says in, the, in that little phrase that we uh, chant in the morning, that I've seen the house builder. Right? This is what he says, I've seen the house builder, I've broken the rafters, I've smashed the house, there's no more rebirthing, there's no more going on for me. Painful has been this rebirthing. Now, traditionally, that's life to life, life to life. But spiritually speaking, that's every time we become a self. We're rebirthing into some sort of suffering. And the worst of the sufferings is when we think we're happy. That's the worst. <laughs> because when, when your happiness is dependent on something which is transient, then you're looking at some form of suffering because of it. And what this practice is making us do is find a deeper sense of happiness which is not dependent on whether something, whether, whether something is pleasant or not. And we know that we're experiencing that when we begin to experience contentment. Contentment is, you know, uh, th probably the greatest of all virtues that comes with this, with this process of liberation from happiness which is dependent on the world. So one is content with the way things are. This is the way it is. That doesn't mean to say you don't change something or, or try to better something, but it's coming from the position of contentment, not from the position of more. Okay? This word more in, in our culture is, is a noun, isn't it? It's not an adjective. I want more sugar or, or <laughs> I want more, more of this, but it's, I just want more. Full stop. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> the virtue of equanimity is something that we need to develop constantly and we do that by stopping Every, all the time you know, I'm, I'm not just talking here you know, in, 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 in a retreat but all day long there's a, a very there's a, a, a fairly a renowned teacher called Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese teacher who lives in France he has a centre in France anyway and I went to see his monastery, I went to stay there for a couple of days. And he had instituted this idea that, every, that somebody had a bell, and every time the bell rang, he stopped, no matter what he did. And the phone as well. When the phone rang, he didn't lurch at it, as if, it was <laughs> as if your life depended on it. 
One waited, you see, for three rings. So you had to wait for three rings. And that's something I took on. I always wait for three rings. Most people will wait three rings, haven't they? <laughs> Just to give you enough time to grab hold of the phone, you know? But I, I find that, for instance, a really uh, helpful little, little trick, little tricks like that. I have my uh, stopwatch on, on my, my watch, every 40 minutes. It varies really, but 40 minutes tends to be. When, that's, when that watch, you know, beats, 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 I just note where I am and I just stop. See? And when you stop, you see, you can catch what it is that you've been, you've been gathering. Very early on in my experience, um, in my meditation experience, I woke up with a dream. And the dream was me running, 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 running. And, and behind me was this huge avalanche of, of darts and spears heading for me. I was running, running, running. <laughs> and I stopped. And these things just went into my back. And that's what meditation is, you see. You stop. <laughs> and all, everything you've accumulated just comes straight at you. And so you know this is, this is what I'm running from. So there you are at work, you see, and the break comes. And instead of, you know, just, just going in and, and carrying on that energy, you know, into the, into the uh, cup of tea and into the chat and all that sort of stuff, but just to sit quietly somewhere and just to let, let things subside and just see what it is that's been mounting behind, you know, behind your back. A little bit of anxiety, a bit of, a, a bit of irritation, all that sort of stuff, and just wait for it to subside. See? And then you've only got to wait for it. You don't have to be there for hours. And then, next thing to be done, then you can join the party. Same when you come home at night, you see, uh, after work. Just to find a little bit of space. It doesn't take long, five, ten minutes. I mean, if you can, if you can make 40 minutes, it's all, all, all good and proper. But even 10 minutes, just to sit quietly and just see what accumulations have come through the day, just to let them rot. Well, it opens up the evening for you, you see. So, <clears throat> this business of stopping, I think, is, is probably the, uh, the most skillful way to bring that sense of equanimity into your lives. And remember that from that equanimous space, you just see things more clearly. There's, there's just greater clarity because you're not running with a, an attitude, you're not running with an emotion, you're not running with a thought. So this has a direct effect on our lives if you, if you just bring that little practice into it. And uh, you, can, you can use this little standing exercise that we do, I uh, showed it at the beginning. Where just for a minute you just you just fall into that you know when when you when the stuff has come through and you've let it drop for a little while you can then just open up into that that you know pure awareness of things around you see achieving nothing going nowhere being nobody and just for a moment okay? and somebody shouts hey what are you doing get on with it <laughs> so. <laughs> So uh, all these things that we're doing here, you see, you can take in somewhere or other into your daily life. And that's how the practice begins to uh, saturate your life and, and hopefully turns it for the better.
So I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.